0: This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening here in southeast Utah. I'm your host Christina Young, and today we're talking about education and storytelling on the Colorado Plateau, and how to strike that delicate balance between informing and overexposing the landscape. It's something that author and storyteller Morgan Shogren has thought about since she first started spending extended periods of time in the Bears Ears backcountry. The
1: Colorado Mountain Club heard through a friend that that I had been out there working on several stories and just really immersing myself in place and asked me if I would be interested in writing um, a guidebook to the National Monument. Since, you know, prior to that, all the hiking materials were pre-National Monument and I just stared blankly in my inbox and was like, I don't think so.
0: But over time, Morgan began to realize the real need to educate the growing number of people who were already starting to visit the region.
1: We talked about it and kind of some of the issues that Ears National Monument was going to face with the increased um, just awareness and, you know, being in the public eye and um, put the potential for the monument to be reduced, which it was, and really pushed me towards the one thing that I thought might give this idea legs, which is... Um, Providing a, a visitor-ready resource that can educate anyone going to the area, um, not just about what's going on in Bears Ears, but also how to visit with respect, how to get involved with protecting it, and kind of wrapping their heads around such a complex place with such complex
0: issues. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about what is that process of figuring out uh, what to include in this in this public interfacing book, What what kind of educational materials to to put in there? what was your, what was your process there?
1: I knew at the core the biggest things that were going to impact the area would be um, you know impacts to cultural sites and then also to the landscape and the environment itself and so um, you know on that first book, the best Bearsers National Monument Hikes, uh, archaeologist Ralph Barillo was kind of my My key source of that information since he had been so heavily involved with Bears Ears and working on the land as an archaeologist, but also working directly with the the intertribal coalition and the tribes who are involved um, with the the management and just the, the underworkings of Bears Ears. And so I really looked to him for guidance. And over the last few years, I've, you know, grown, learned to grow my relationships with conservation groups and um, Indigenous voices who are people who are very involved with management and um, the issues um, in the areas, scientists, um, locals who maybe have different perspectives than my own. I, I really just, um, when I wasn't out in the back country, um, you know, studying the land itself with my feet, I just looked, I was like a sponge and I still am. I, I just love talking to people who are passionate about these landscapes, especially in the Colorado Plateau and, and learning their perspectives.
0: You mentioned you, you were hesitant at first to get into guidebooks because of pushback. And I was wondering if anything did manifest, if you did feel pushback after mm-hmm. um, putting a guidebook out there.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, at first I definitely, I actually got quite a bit of hate mail. Um, this was all prior to the guidebook ever coming out. It was just when it was, you know, made public that this book would be coming out. Um, and I, I don't want to shy away from that because I think it's a really, um, you know, it's fine for people to not, uh, Agree with everything that's published and put out into the world, but I I think there um, needs to be some awareness of the wrath that some authors get um, when people haven't even read the book and when it came out many people probably not the people who wrote hate letters, um, but many people who were wary about the project actually came to me afterwards and were, were really surprised and pleased and like relieved and, and finally understood the vision, um, which was not to create this like book of secrets to bear's ears or grand staircase, but rather to really hone in on which hikes and areas are gonna be the most heavily visited and impacted and address
0: the needs of those, those hikes. Can you, can you just like maybe walk us through like a place that, like how you would interact with that place? Um, you know, what, what are those principles that you think people need to understand?
1: I don't necessarily view going outside as like something that's different than anything else you would do in life. And, and there's just needs to be a great deal of respect when you set foot on that soil, um, on those trails, um, in those canyons and to really be mindful of what you're doing as if you were visiting somebody else's house. Um, and so really that means to leave as little impact as possible, stay on trails, um, You know, look at things, but not touching everything, especially um, artifacts and rock art and dwellings. It means um, taking pictures but not geotagging them you know being being mindful of what information you're you're sharing on the internet um you know these aren't things to keep people from coming but they are um, retaining some of the mystery and wonder for others um, while also protecting them because increased visitation does increase the risks of vandalism um you know it means packing everything out that you bring with you not leaving anything behind um really Coming to these places, we're all going to leave our footprints on the ground, but really um, with the attitude that these places should be left as if we were not there at all, to the best of our ability. You know, I I feel that it's a great privilege, um, despite all the really trying things that are going on right now, to be alive in this time when we're seeing a shift, um, that things don't have to continue to be done the way we've, quote unquote, ALWAYS DONE THEM IN COLONIAL AMERICA, um, AND REALLY SEEING, um, YOU KNOW, THAT SHIFT, THAT PIVOT TO LOOKING TOWARDS um, THE the LOCAL TRIBES, TO INDIGENOUS PEOPLE, TO NOT JUST BE A PART OF THESE CONVERSATIONS, BUT TO LEAD THE WAY AND HELP TEACH US ABOUT HOW WE CAN PROCEED PROTECTING LANDSCAPES, um, HOW WE CAN PROCEED TALKING ABOUT um, CULTURAL SITES, LEARNING ABOUT HISTORY, um, we're seeing changes in the terminology we use. I even think about you know, five years ago, some of the ways we would describe like you know, ancient history and the terminology um, ha- have shifted and, and it's, you're seeing it, you know, this is like an indigenous led shift that's affecting scholars, it's affecting recreation, um, outdoor recreationists, it's, it's awesome. So it's, it's really wonderful to be in, um, in the midst of this transition and, and it's really, it's, that's the future. Um, that indig- indigenous leadership, um, especially when it comes to the land and our environment.
0: Um, sounds like you're kind of transitioning into um, different types of stories about, you know, history, culture, and conservation in the region. I was wondering if you could tell me about what kind of stories do you like to write and what what do you want to see come of them, if that makes sense? Yeah.
1: So, you know, after I finished my second guidebook to Grand Staircase-Escalante, probably my favorite part of those projects was just getting to immerse myself so deeply in the landscape and, you know, cover so much ground and spend months at a time out in the desert. Um, I also wanted to like learn more about the human history of the landscape, both um, the indigenous history, but also the modern impacts that we're seeing effects of, you know, from 100 years back to today. And, and so I, I started digging into um, historic archives in my free time, especially in the winter, um, and then taking those photos and old journals and um, using that information to go back out onto the land and kind of inform my hikes. So um, I'm, I'm currently working on a project where I retraced a 300 mile-ish expedition from 1929 or around Bears Ears in Glen Canyon and I, I used that experience to kind of take those old journals that describe the landscape 100 years ago and then compared them with what what we're seeing out in some of the more remote areas today and it's been incredibly eye-opening and um just a really rewarding experience to to fuse these things and learn more and go deeper um, and understand why we need to protect um, and be mindful of these
0: places. Um, that project sounds fascinating. Can you give us a sneak peek of of kind of what you've been seeing? Have you have you seen? or, you know, read and seen differences in, in how this place was?
1: Definitely. So, I mean, the biggest one, and, and this kind of leads into Glen Canyon, uh, but as we all know, um, the Colorado River has been dammed, um, out out of page and so that has completely changed this entire stretch of canyon between page and height utah Um, and the expedition actually like descended some of the mesas down into the river corridor and hiked along the river and so that's not even possible today Um, and so it was really interesting um, locating some of those historic trails that they would have taken down to the river and now hiking down to a giant lake and having a motorboat uh, passed by. And yet on, you know, saved on my phone, I've got a picture of the same area where they're walking with horses along a river. Um, and just, you know, having, it really made that change so striking um, to have that knowledge from a hundred years ago. Um, and not, you know, we all know that the river has changed into this reservoir, but it, it was much more impactful to have that um, glimpse into the past um, another big change is, uh, you know, part of the route went through Grand Gulch and um, the guy who kept the journal writes that, you know, that kind of is like, basically he goes, this place is getting crowded. A lot of people come here every year. And by a lot of people, I mean, maybe one other party comes a year. It's kind of like a joke. Um, but now, you know, Grand Gulch actually has a, a permit system implemented during the on season because visitation has increased DRAMATICALLY, AND you know, I THINK IT'S LIKE A LIMIT OF 20 PEOPLE PER DAY, I COULD HAVE THIS WRONG, PER TRAILHEAD, um, YOU KNOW, IT'S, it's NOT, um, it, YOU KNOW, SO THEY HAVE TO ACTUALLY CAP um, VISITATION, AND THAT'S TO REDUCE THE IMPACTS OF OUR, our FOOTPRINTS and, AND BEING IN THE CANYONS, SO that, THOSE ARE TWO MAJOR CHANGES from IN THE LAST 100 YEARS. Uh, the other is that it was a really really wet period in the southwest and so they're dealing with like really cold damp weather quicksand and right now we are in the midst of an extreme drought and i really um it was really intense finding water during some sections of the route where there were no problems 100 years ago Um, and so that's something you know there's just things that if the rain doesn't fall it's almost not safe or feasible to to travel those distances in these areas anymore. Um, I had to cut portions of the route because I just wouldn't make it without water. It was too far to carry. So yeah, major, major changes. It was really, um, it really put it in my face and and gave a lot of perspective um, to understand what, you know, drought over visitation and like damming something, what it really
0: means for the landscape. You know, I was wondering, as somebody who is, you know, public-facing, as somebody who does share images and stories about this place, um, where do you strike the balance between overexposure versus, um, you know, excitement and, and getting people to love this place even more so that we protect it? Like, you know, we're seeing that just because more people visit a place doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be protected you know just so mm-hmm. I was wondering wh- what for you personally like where do you draw that balance yeah um
1: it's it's something that I am I'm mindful of in my my work um gosh every single day um it's you know for a while I think for, for me a lot of that focus was on social media um but i lately I'm finding that I'm grappling more with it in my writing where it's harder. Um, you know, do I, do I talk about the specific canyon? Um, you know, how, how vague do I make it or how specific do I make it? And there's a lot of word choice and information and like, oh, does this uh, give too much away? And, and there's a lot of, there is room for nuance though there. Um, but it's, it's definitely a challenge, especially when I'm, you know, I'm working on like a book length project and there's so many different places and there's things where you have to bring awareness to some things, but you also don't want to, you know, I'm not writing a guidebook right now. So I don't necessarily want to give all that information away
0: we've we've already alluded to this a lot of the voices specifically thinking about guidebooks but also a lot of the stories about this place have been written by you know western white men and I'm wondering you know as a woman as a storyteller here in the southwest and on the plateau like um what do you think being a woman um how do you think it has you know changed the way you approach writing about this place or or if it has at all
1: you know, like everyone else, when I came to the Colorado Plateau, I picked up a copy of Desert Solitaire. <laughs> and I, I love I love Ed Abbey dearly. Um, and I went down the rabbit hole of, you know, reading thing anything I could get my hands on um, about this area, especially um, literature and, and history. And so much of it has been written by males. A lot of white males who are well-meaning and who care greatly for this place. Um, but I have since had a great shift in the perspectives, the different voices and people that I read, and and two, a few of my favorite um, authors in this region um, are Ellen Malloy, Ann Zwinger, and Terry Tempest Williams. And I think having those those female perspectives has really helped me realize, you know, I didn't necessarily see having a female perspective as being different early on. And now I'm starting to see that I think in the female tradition of writing about these places, um, there's not this sense of wanting to uh, protect or conserve from a domineering perspective. Um, Like, oh, I did this hard thing and I care about it. Um, But really I I read these women's writing and I think about my own writing and perspective as it's grown. And there's this sense of understanding that you're a part of this ecosystem and that you are not separate from this place and how your actions affect the world around you. And and this isn't to say that um, male authors don't have this perspective, but it it comes through quite strongly in those other women writers' work. And it's something that I really find myself... um, meditating on when i'm especially when i'm alone in the wilderness not this sense of oh my gosh we got to save this place uh but also you know wow i'm a part of this place and i'm also a part of the problems and and really thinking um you know as the landscape not separate from it
0: um you know as you go through this process of you know writing guidebooks writing stories delving further into this place going back in history thinking forward you know um you know, what, what have you kind of, what have you learned? Or, you know, can you can you tell me some kind of understandings that have deepened or, or changes that you have, like, um, that you've come to about about this place that so many people do care about?
1: I'm coming to understand the responsibility that comes with um, spending time learning about these places, and you know, so much of that responsibility is not just sharing what I learn and see in the land, but being receptive to hearing the stories of others and being a vehicle to help share um, some of those differing perspectives with broader people. I think that's something that I'm um, realizing more and more, and and that's also you know a way to help facilitate the shift from you know, a, a world of male, white, male-dominated voices, and and um, being a helping uh, facilitate the inclusion of more perspectives about this place um, is a huge responsibility. Um, along with you know efforts to to use anything I learned for good and to help educate future visitors about these places, and hoping to instill and inspire others to care um, about getting and in, getting involved to help protect
0: areas. Well, this was really fun to talk to you. Um, You too. Yeah.
1: Thanks for for thinking of me.
0: To learn more or listen to more Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab Media is by Sophia Fisher. Newsletter is by Rhonda Cook. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.